Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, hello, Marwa. I'm uh, uh, happy to be here. I'm Christos Vergeles. I'm a senior lecturer at King's College London, where I work on image-guided robotic microsurgery. Thanks so much, Professor, for joining us, uh, the podcaster. I would like to go when you were a child. Do you have any memories about your childhood when you were just in science or technology as a kid? Yeah, so... So I, I, I'm, I'm lucky to come from a, from a background that, that had science within the family. My, my dad was a mechanical engineer, so I, I was very much uh, exposed to, to his lab and all the, the stuff they were doing there. He was on fluid dynamics and the, you know, aeronautics and things like that. So, so definitely I do remember all this, this more fancy stuff and, and computers and computational stuff. Now, I mean, my, my own interest was uh, with buildings. I was making uh, miniatures, uh, miniature planes, and we're trying to, to robotize them and add motors at the later stage and things like that. So, so I guess that was my, my earliest uh, interaction with, with science. So if I ask you, what is the most beautiful and simple profound equation that inspires you? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I would say AX equals B. I, this is a fantastic equation. Whenever we we manage to find it, we are very happy. I mean, you know, you can you can use it for optimization. You can use it to solve something. Uh, it's it's it behaves very well. It's it's you know has all these nice linear properties. AX equals B is my my favorite. Oh, yeah, great, yeah, yeah, very simple, yeah, and yeah, also exactly. profound, yeah. And if I ask you, what is the first robot you built, if you remember? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it a robot. I mean, it was. Uh, I bought. Uh, can't remember. I must have been like twelve or thirteen or something. Uh, there was a book called The Robot Builders Bonanza, uh, where uh, you you were trying to make electronic circuits that would have some sort of logic, and then I was trying to make a critter that would have uh, like um, um, a transistor that would just alternate the current in a motor. So the voltage in a motor, so that you would be able to make something something move by changing the polarity of of the motor. And I was trying to make that critter. Uh, it kind of worked, but uh, it was very hard to source components in Greece. It was not, um, you didn't have a local shop that you would buy everything. So it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't straightforward. So then I, I kind of uh, focused more on software. Yeah, that's interesting. How old were you was at this time in Greece when you were doing that? I must have been like around 13, 14, to so- somewhere there, you know, like... Uh, Middle, uh, uh, what we say, early, early, early stage of secondary school, somewhere there. So, for your journey, how how you came to soft robotics? When you, you know, I think you you are really from Greece and you travel and how this journey until you are now and you are seeing lecture and soft robotics field. How the journey was easy for you, challenging. I mean, I, I can't say it was, I mean, challenging. It's, it was only challenging in regards that I had to work. But, but I mean, um, I, I must face it. A lot of things were given to me uh, in the sense that, you know, I, I came from a background that, that supported me and they knew how to guide me. I was lucky to go to, to a, a very good public school. And then, you know, they nurtured me and uh, they, they helped me, uh, you know, grow. And, uh, and then I, 
I, I went to the National Technical University of Athens to, to take my diploma in engineering. And there I managed to land with some very good academics as well that were interested. Uh, so, you know, all across the way, there were key figures that, you know, one way or the other would take an interest in me and, uh, uh, you know, tell me off when I was lazy and also support me when I was, uh, I was acting uh, well. And anyway, after that, you know, I went to Switzerland. I worked at a fantastic lab there, very supportive. And then I went to the, the U.S. again a lot. So, so I'd say I worked hard, but but a lot of things were um, I didn't have to fight for other things. And then in the end, I I, I decided to return to Europe. And London was a and is the best compromise in my opinion between uh, the United States and uh, between mainland Europe. I think it has a good compromise between the two cultures. And so we've been here now seven years and uh, yeah, so things are going well. Now soft robotics, I'd say this is where I, I did my poster with compliant robots. And so I decided to take this further and try to see how we could have uh, tunable stiffnesses in our robots. And now looking at uh, uh, robots that combine the soft characteristics and the rigid ones. That's wonderful, yeah. So if I ask you how you define soft robotics from your experiences that you had? Yeah, so that's that's an interesting question. I would define a soft robot as something that can have a programmable compliance. So, some because I feel if they don't have programmable compliance, then it's you know a piece of cloth is a, is soft. But then what can you do with it necessarily? I'm interested in the surgical perspective, and then you need to change compliance from being stiff in order to do something to being super soft in order to navigate or don't cause any harm. So I'd say soft robotics for me are, are, are mechanisms that have tunable compliance that can, you know, either fully conform to their environment or affect their environment by, 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 by changing into something more stiff. And if I ask you in this perspective, what could be the most important questions that you have to consider while designing tunable stiffness, soft robot for surgical application? Um, we are interested in, in, in solving problems that have uh, some clinical potential. So it's we're in that sense we are application driven. So we're trying to have the 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 application questions in mind. So in a lot of these 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 topics, there is always a question: Why would you need a soft component and soft robot when you have like an existing technology that works well? Uh, and so, if we are able to find these clinical questions, then we are able to motivate ourselves a lot in order to answer to identify the engineering questions and answer them. Now, the engineering questions, in my opinion, soft robotics is materials um, and uh, manufacturing and, and control. These, these three aspects. I mean, on one hand, materials, because if you are smart with the materials you're using or the materials themselves are smart, then you can embed intelligence in the robots, which can allow you to do better tasks later. Construction, because I think it's not straightforward to have a robust design that repeatably works. And finally, control, because it just everything is, is so, so non-linear that uh, you need to develop good models in order to be able to do downstream control. I think you said very interesting points that we wanted to break it and maybe a different question. The first question is because I think you have been working on modeling extensively about modeling. First of all, I would like to ask you your thoughts about modeling. If you have the material that could be intelligent, assuming we use maybe passive material or smart material, what is the role of the modeling, do you think? And do you think in our field, we use modeling in a proper way or maybe appreciated in publication so that you can have a design recipe, how you design this material and understand them? That's a very good question. 
I mean, I think modeling is very important because we are able then to reverse engineer what we would like. If you have a model, then you are able to tune the various parameters of the model. And as you said, uh, go and focus more towards design, which is some of the early work we did in, 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 uh, in, uh, in the field. Um, now, the question is really, do you need the model in order to do control or are you able to have another approach? Now, that's where all these data-driven approaches come in play, right? So you could say that if you had a way to properly capture the behavior of your robot under any circumstance, then you'd be able to fit a, a function that would play the role of the model, like a system identification type of thing. So, so that's also an option. But I think unless we are understanding to a certain degree how the systems perform, then we are not able to, to, full, to properly design them and explore them. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So if I ask you what could be maybe interesting for you in the modeling, what maybe is the significant parameters in designing tunable stiffness, actuators, for example, for surgical application, could be really relevant. How you figure out these parameters? Yeah, so my, my interest right now is uh, to investigate how we can generate these environments that would allow us to capture the behavior of any soft or compliant robot as if they were able to have any sort of torques exercised on them, any sort of forces exercised on them. So how could we create data environments that allow us to do data-driven uh, modeling of, of these robotic systems? Now, in, in parallel with, uh, with a postdoc in my team, Habi, who's extremely good at, at modeling, he, he's investigating how we can go back to the fundamentals of, you know, the masses and the dynamics and do modeling for growing robots and, and compliant robots there. I think this is extremely interesting, especially if you want to do, you know, uh, the design phases, which would be before you have the data-driven uh, models. Uh, so I'd say that the both, both approaches are complementary, but my, my specific focus right now is trying to see how we can introduce this deep learning into modeling of robots, but go away from the kinematics that which is just you know a robot moving in air and look can we do deep learning for dynamics can we do deep learning for statics can we do you know some more complex behaviors uh, of the robot to be captured mm -hmm. that's interesting do you think when you're using deep learning techniques for maybe coming up with the models or understanding how this system behave do you think there's a trade-off between the amount of data you need or actual data you need from your robot to fit with uh, the algorithm to capture the dynamics looking for. Do you think there's a trade-off between them or how you can manage to make it useful tool for you? Yeah, uh, there's definitely a trade-off always. I mean, um, first of all, it's, it's, an, it's, it's, you don't really get an insight into the system. You can, you can predict what the system will do, but you don't necessarily understand it. So there is, of course, uh, the debate there. Do I need to understand or do I need just to I mean, there's a lot of things we don't understand yet we, we use in everyday life. So, uh, but the amount of data I suspect would need to capture all the different um, uh, key components of the robot's behavior in, in, in a real environment. Um, so you can't get away with not having enough data. Now, it could be that you could have a preliminary model that then you fine tune with data. It's like kind of like an advanced calibration procedure. Uh, these are the things we we need to explore right now. I don't um, I don't have an answer yet to what exactly the trade off will be. Yeah, yeah. So if I ask you about what kind of maybe the materials you're looking for, what maybe the optimum material you're looking for, and I'm asking this question because I think that uh, also question we have in the podcast, 
about the performance of the material we use. Sometimes, for example, on the smart material, for example, on soft robotics in general, there is a trade-off between the mechanical performance you're expecting and also the bandwidth or response time of the soft robot. Why do you think there's a trade-off between both of the this um, two aspects of the mechanical performance and response time? Um, okay, so I have to admit that my expertise doesn't lie with the smart materials themselves, but what I meant more is that if we are able to choose from a range of materials rather than the first stuff that comes in our field, you know, in, in our hands, even, for example, choosing the appropriate density for the, the, the elastic, uh, the, if it's a growing robot, for example, the appropriate density of the sheet that, that the robot grows. But what I'm more interested in is can we, for example, pattern on that sheet a specific um, maybe we, even with 3D printing, with uh, micro 3D printing, electrical connections, and then within the material, as it grows, as it's being pushed, be able to record some information. Um, now, the trade-off that you said between the, the mechanics and the, uh, and the response time, I mean, I'm not sure if you're referring specifically to a certain material, but uh, you, you're talking about, for example, a shape memory alloy or... or uh, it could be the spectrum. How, how... I think a spectrum of a smart material like uh, any conductive polymer. And I think in, even in the field and even passive material, they have the issue about that it's not fast enough. Of course, it depends. There's a lot of... Maybe we have to be precautious about what I mean here because it could be also dangerous if we speak about this, how much is the speed you need for yourself, robot. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a basic scene that why we can't get both of them at the same time? I mean, I'd say it really depends on the on the application, and that, that that's where the end goal comes in. Because what is a slow response time for somebody could be an adequate response time for someone else. Like, let's assume you want to, and and also you don't need to to do the entire end to end business with the same type of robot. Let's say you would like to have a some sort of a catheter that that navigates to to the brain. Uh, you don't need to be super fast for this. So you could take it, take your time, go to that location, and then in there, then you your end effector could be something that's more rapid. Um, so yeah, I I I don't I, that's not exactly my domain, so I don't I don't have any insights. Maybe a student could ask you a question about what are the limitations or challenges you face in your research in terms of designing tunable stiffness uh, actuators. What's the main challenges and limitation? Um, yeah, I think the, the main challenge uh, is, is something that I find it's uh, it's it's yeah, everywhere in the field of, of of robotics. So, so in computer vision, uh, it is now customary and almost a requirement to deposit your software online and to do comparisons with other people or, and have everything available. Now, in the context of robotics and hardware development for robots, every group that starts starts from scratch. There is no repository on, let's say, a concentric tube robot that you could uh, just go download and build. There is no repository on on uh, a growing robot that you could just go download and build and then start doing research on top of that. So every team that wants to embark and start on a field, they need to start from scratch by even understanding the first principles again. And this slows progress down, I think. So, so I hope that with our publication, we'll be able to also put mechanical designs online so that somebody that wants really to go, they're not going to have just the paper, but they will be able to recreate the paper. And so we will have something like the capability to even 
a repeat or there is there is something in again in, in computer vision called runnable papers where in theory you we are able to run the code and reproduce everything the paper has done to do something as well like this for uh, the mechanical engineering aspects of robotics i think this will you know allow more people to to jump on the field uh, especially when there are limited resources. I think this is a really excellent point you highlighted here, and we discussed also in the podcast how we can have reproducible results. If I ask you, what may be the factors contribute that we don't have re reproducible results? And also, there's a pressure to publish, and that's something I think we need to highlight voices like you and other that that could cause harm that you under, if you want to understand fundamentally it's how to design and you still keep everything... Um, secretly uh, until you publish it or and also you don't have to share the source code of uh, what you're doing as a source that's also contribute that we don't have reproducibility in the research so if i ask you what are the factors that contribute to that and how we can uh, overcome the, the challenges that we have i mean the factor that contributes to this is that uh, after as, a, as an academic group you've spent three four five years uh, fine-tuning something and then obviously to to make it open uh, is, is is hurting you in the sense that you're losing your competitive advantage. Uh, that's the same for uh, for everything. Uh, it was the same for for computer vision as well. That essentially you're creating a code base that is your it is your competitive advantage for research. Uh, but I mean, the the reason that this we will be forced, I think, to to come out of this is that increasingly funding bodies also require that you make the outputs of the publicly funded research available. And this also means the, the, the things that contributed or, or, or were part of your, your publications. Um, so, for example, in, you know, now, now some of the bigger journals, they ask for your data. Now, okay, sometimes it's not possible to give you the data, uh, you know, confidential or whatever. But in general, it, it, it's a step or it, it shows that there is a shift in mentality towards what is really part of the academic publication and what is, uh, uh, should be um, showcased uh, fully openly. And I think, you know, if a few people start doing it, and I, I really hope we, we can be one of those, uh, then then people will, will jump on it because it, it, it will make sense. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think that's something, yeah, we hope that will be changed and hope the solution will be viable for um, the mm -hmm. publication, yeah. I'm curious to ask you, what is an area of direction in research in the field you think is very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much attention to it at the moment? Um, okay, let me let me think about this right now. So, so what I really like is to I mean, that's, I don't know whether, I haven't seen publications, let's put it that way. I I would like to be seeing more simulations of how robots perform when they are in real environments that are fully deformable. So so there is this, this field of, of surgical simulation or of, uh, a deformable environment, and then there's the field of, of soft robotics and modeling, but we haven't merged the two. Like, uh, for example, in the publications I see, um, there are uh, usually robots are being modeled in static environments, non-deformable environments, things things like that. Uh, I'd like to see those two combined. So, so to have really high fidelity simulations where the models can be evaluated. I think that's also an excellent point. If you can tell us about why do you think we don't have reached this point yet? Are you saying that... Uh... 
maybe there is no interest in that or maybe because when you publish something you just need to publish as soon as possible and we neglect the core problem why do you think there is no much investment in in developing simulation for example like an example with that uh, in viscoelastic materials sometimes it's challenging to simulate them because of the high young models and most of the tool tailored if i'm not mistaken tailored for elastic material and that's a challenge as well but why do you think we don't we didn't invest so much time in, in in developing such a tool or maybe take our time to answer this question that you said already now um i think it requires that it requires two communities to come together the the the, the, the environment the modeling community the tissue modeling community and the you know the communities that that that, that look at how uh, the environment can be modeled and that would be more computer graphics people and the robotics uh, and modeling community, and that would be people that do, you know, um, hardcore equation stuff. And the two should be able to talk a common language so that the models from one side could be transferred to the models of the other side. Because if any of the single of the two communities trying to address this this problem on their own, like we as roboticists, we won't be able to do very high fidelity simulations because that's, you know, it's not it's not in the expertise of you know people that come in the field. Uh, and so I think there is this gap. And also, I mean, we, as robotics, we do get our publications out, even if we don't consider this. So so why why bother if, you know, you can still reach your, your goal of publishing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. And that's also excellent point to be considered. I think recommendation as well. So if I ask you what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed, or maybe you received from your peers or outside the community about the work, about your work, or maybe a soft robotics field in general? Um, I'd say, you know, soft robotics is, 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 is a buzzword right now. It's a, it's a very hyped field. And so I think there is a misconception that everything should be soft uh, and that this is a solution to every problem. Um, so yeah, there are there are solutions to some problems, but they are also problems for uh, other solutions. So I think there needs to be a, a good compromise between what is the benefit that a fully soft robot would bring and what would uh, the benefits of existing uh, more classical manipulators and robots could bring. Um, so yeah, it, that, not everything needs to be soft, uh, and I think that's you know, it, it just seems that. Unless something is soft these days, then it's not necessarily interesting. I'm curious to ask you about again about the nonlinearities in the in the system that you're using or the material you're already using for your uh, tunable stiffness. If I ask you, and that's a question we ask all the time, how we can access maybe the beneficial nonlinearities in the material we use or the structure geometry, so that we can get that is interesting information. Do you think if for your work is interesting to figure out what could be the beneficial nonlinearities? And the, the second yeah. part of the question uh, is, if you figure out that, do you think we can replace the, that with the traditional control? Because there is also debate about that the traditional control can destroy the system. You're forcing the system to behave in a certain way and neglecting this dynamics or nonlinearities in this the, the intrinsic feature of this material. I think this is a very, very good question. And uh, definitely, if I know from past experience, exploiting the nonlinear regions of your systems uh, can push them to the to the best of their performance. Uh, but you would need some sort of uh, capability to predict what's going to happen. 
Now, if the models, uh, the, the classical equation-based models, mechanics-based models, they, they don't capture that, then that's perhaps where uh, the data-driven approaches can come in. And so you could have some sort of a model switching approach where when you go to the nonlinear regions, you switch to your data-driven approach in order to exploit these extra uh, capabilities of the system at that region for a short time, and then uh, um, you revert back to the, the, the remaining models if you know, when you want to, to have your classical control. Um, one, for example, in, in, in concentric tube robots, which is uh, uh, some, some robots we, we are working with, um, there is a, a very, very not, not, not so well uh, described or studied behavior where the robot is uh, performing a very unstable maneuver. And this, so far, this, the, the tendency is to avoid this maneuver and to recognize when it's gonna happen and just steer away from these configurations. But now what we're looking at as another group is like, if I can predict when this will happen and know exactly the path, then I'll be able to just use it in order to exercise higher forces, for example. And then you would you would need to exploit this this nonlinearity, this this very uh, hard to model um, uh, uh, configuration of, of of the robot in order to carry out a task that's otherwise not possible. And I think you said something about being predictive. And we had Professor Jens Bieter from Max Planck Institute, and he said that we have to design soft robots that are more predictive and less depending on the feedback. And if you look at the nature and inspiration, if we ask you what are the missing pieces, get an inspiration for the tunable stiffness, what could be inspiring for you? Is it like the behavior of certain creatures, how they change the stiffness of their body? And do you think that we really have to focus on how we can be how we can design and predict soft robotics and less depending on feedback? What your thought about that? I mean, to be able to to predict is definitely extremely important. I mean, if if we think about how how humans and and animals navigate, we're always a step ahead. Uh, we don't wait to see whether it will fall. We are actually you know understanding where we should land. And so I think this is this is very important now. I mean, prediction could be part of the models and the control to, to extrapolate how you're going to go in the future and what's going to happen. Uh, but you would always need to have some feedback from sensors to be able to do meaningful predictions. Um, so, so, I mean, I think prediction is important, but in the way I perceive it, you are predicting based on the sensors and the sensor information you already have by extrapolating in the future and then moving into this future instantiation of the environment that you have created from your current sensing information. Um, so, so still, a, a prediction would come from whatever feedback you have so far, the history of that feedback, and an extrapolation on how this is going to go in the future. So I don't think you will be able to predict without uh, having some sort of, of good feedback information that's reliable and can be extrapolated. Yeah, that's also a valid point here to be considered. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you about, uh, we had a second soft robotics debate, and I think that would be interesting uh, to ask you this question about your work about the tunable stiffness. Do you think that you are satisfied with functionalities you have for your system? Do you think the solution, maybe finding new material with new functionality, or do you think we have to uh, deploy the concept of architected compliance for designing the, the tunable stiffness actuator. How do you see the debate between them? Do you think that you have to deploy architected compliance or the morphology, how the morphology is designed, the shape, or you have to go for a new materials with new functionalities? 
I mean, I don't think that we have uh, pushed the capabilities of uh, what we can build so far to, to the maximum. Um, this is also the, the nature of, you know, academic publishing. You, you, you have an idea, you, you try it, it works, you have a publication, that doesn't mean you're going to hammer it down to make sure it's fully reliable and working 100%. So I think that even with what we have so far, the technology we have so far in terms of like building robots, we can do lots and lots of stuff without necessarily needing to design new materials. Uh, especially in terms of you know what we are working on, uh, so I'd be more interested to to look into uh, new materials and new designs for the robots in order to to achieve better feedback from the environment um, as a as a as an addition to what we are doing right now to help in, in control and to safe navigation. But I think we can push already what we have to a very good extent, and uh, and then investigate new uh, new things to incorporate. That's also because I'm coming more for a, from a software engineering background. So I think you can do a lot in those terms before changing the robot architecture completely. Mm -hmm. I think that's also interesting because I think when you said about um, the ideas that propose, for example, from your perspective, what makes uh, a certain idea or proposed solution reliable for the field? Um, of course, we have the publication process, but if we, realistically speaking, that's how we can have a shifting paradigm that how we design or we have to push the limit again here. Where do you think this is, uh, how we can make sure that this idea would be reliable for the field? How we can asset the idea? Uh, maybe because to be honest, sometimes it is too risky if you work in a new different solution uh, outside the stream of how the field is focusing or the trend. And that's, and that's also discussion in, in the podcast with, with our uh, one of our guests. His name is Benjamin. He's a postdoc at Harvard. Mm. And he said that it, he thinks differently, but sometimes it's risky because the field is focusing on in a certain paradigm. And if you come up with a different idea, it could be sometimes uh, this, uh, you can be, yeah, it's, it's not considered, to be honest. So how do you see this sort of ideas that could be viable to be considered in your research? I mean, I think it's 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 really good to to be exploring new ideas, even if they are uh, you know a little bit wacky and crazy. And especially you know when when it is uh, this is this is why academia is there. But I think ultimately what filters down ideas and research directions for me is that I'm asking, who cares? Let's say we have this fancy new thing. Who cares? Is there anybody that would say, okay, my God, this is actually cool. I'd like to use it. Doesn't need to be an application. It just needs. Is anybody going to say, oh, wow, I'm glad these guys did that because it's so nice or because, you know, we'd like to, to use it. If it's something that nobody would say, oh, yeah, okay. If nobody cares, then 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 even if it's the best of the ideas, then it doesn't make sense to, to pursue it, not from my perspective, at least. Um, so I wouldn't say, ask whether it's, you know, within with the stream or out of the stream or whether it's crazy or not. But if you do it and it's successful, will somebody care about it other than you and you know your pi that, that's i think what what uh, what sorts out the research directions for me and if i ask you from your experiences what could be the biggest technological roadblocks the face of robotics could face the soft robotics in the short term and long term uh in the short term, I'd say, you know, the lack of open source hardware solutions that could allow more people to jump on the, on the, on the, on the, within, to, to enter the community and start developing based on what other people have built. 
And on the longer term, uh, I mean, as technological hurdles, um, yeah, I'd say that we would need, as any, any successful robotic system would need to combine very good proprioception and exteroception in order to, to be able to be deployed in any sort of environment. And the, it is the nature of soft robots that the more you add to them, the less soft they become. Uh, so, so we would need to find a, a compromise between how we are able to add more sensors on our soft robotic systems while still uh, making them remain soft. I think also we have a question also, uh, one of the audience asked it before, and I want to ask you this question again. What makes soft material viable to be used for manufacturing material for soft robot? Is it better functionality or easy manufacturing? Um, so I'd say availability, availability and, uh, and the reduced cost. Uh, that is what uh, what we would need to, to strive for in order for something to be used. Otherwise, it will be not available uh, to, to, to everybody. It will be very hard to source. So we, we should look not for two exotic materials, but something that, as you said, is easily manufacturable. It could be manufactured large scale, and uh, it has the possibility of also being you know safe for the human and all that. And I'm going to ask you, where's the any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved something could be very interesting for you, or you didn't expect it when you did the modeling and simulation and an experiment that was, you didn't expect that. It was very interesting for you. Uh, yeah, we, we had, uh, we, we, we wanted to use the, the, the properties of, um, of the, the concentric shoes we're using uh, for to do intrinsic uh, shape sensing, so the properties of the metal, uh, we thought that they could uh, act like uh, uh, strain gauges as they bend that uh, you know the resistance. This, this, uh, I believed in this idea a lot because I thought the uh, was, I thought it was freaking smart, but uh, in the end it didn't go anywhere. Uh, and so that was, uh, you know, we 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 played around for a few months, tried to to build our circuits, did a few experiments, tried, 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 didn't seem to go anywhere even though we thought it would be, you know, something uh, really, really good. And that led me to a question, why do you think sensor design is so challenging in the field? And do you think we have to go towards integrating sensing capabilities as a material, like, for example, any conductive polymer could be sensor and actuator at the same time? Do you think it is important for your work to go in this direction, or does it make sense to you? Um, I, I think the hard part comes from the fact that uh, we, you know, we don't get the measurements. The measure, the measuring mechanism is not, not very robust, and perhaps the signal is buried within the noise. Um, also, another challenge in my domain specifically is some of the the, the, the materials that will be used, or some of the um, sensing elements are not biocompatible, so you can't really uh, make a case for introducing them in the body. Um, I think. Ultimately, yeah, if you do have materials that act both as sensors and as actuators, that could be very interesting. And, you know, you mentioned electroactive polymers there. Uh, the question there is, you know, whether you are able to do something meaningful with them. For example, especially again in the, in the surgical domain, are you able to deliver some forces at the tip or are they only for navigation? Um, so that, that would be, I guess, the, the trade-offs that need to be identified. Is, is this material cool enough, and but is it also useful for what some people want for? I think that's also a question from uh, was from audience at the debate from Sarah Abed from University College of London. 
And I think that's I think that's also important to be asked this question: Why the translation of soft robotics to industry is so challenging? Is it because of the manufacturing process or the modeling of soft robots? And where do you think the breakthrough is missing? Um, I wouldn't say it's challenging. The soft robotics is has been a field. Uh, I mean, let's say six years more or less and this has started to be developed so it's it's in the, in the context of translating technology that's not a two that's not a very long time and um, i'd say that perhaps the reason is that there hasn't nobody has found a killing application yet uh, in the sense that i mean the one that i see most promising or from you know it, it could be grasping but then again in industrial settings, grasping is 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 handled with uh, either uh, you know vacuum sort of grippers or with uh, other types of sorting. So you never you never really need to grasp complex objects and move them from one container to the other. Um, so right now, some somebody should make a very good business case on why a specific soft robot is better than the current system. And I think especially in the in these these industrial areas that soft robotics want to, to enter, there has been so much development and so much effort and so much uh, success with classical robots that uh, showcasing this added value is not straightforward. And uh, we are close to the end and have a few questions. Maybe the student could ask you, what is your aspiration for uh, tunable stiffness activated for surgical application? What you're looking for in the like five years, ten years? What we imagine about? Yeah, we we would like to to have a, a robot that is able to to navigate the, the the lumen of the body, like let's say the vasculature, so that it retains its soft performance while it's navigating, and then reaches uh, locations where uh, you know there are calcifications or where stents need to be deployed or uh, you know to do something in the heart. And there, it is able to to tune its stiffness and just go from the compliant mode to the to the surgical or to the interactive mode to carry out the delivery of surgery. So that's that would be ideally the system we have uh, in the next five years or so. And I think that's also a question we covered some part of it. How can we enable more inclusive culture around combative idea? I think that's something we discussed. But if you can tell us three solution or one or two as you like that what could be solution for that how we can ensure that um because we know there's a severe competition and there's few grants of funding for certain ideas so how we can be inclusive uh for different ideas proposed for the, maybe different approaches as well yeah that's a very good question um obviously that's a, that's a huge uh, discussion these days um and rightfully so um it's uh, the problem is with how how research funding is allocated uh, to a certain extent because it's only allocated based on a written application and not doesn't mean that everybody that has great ideas are also good writers uh it's actually maybe the other way around that people that are good writers are you know are able to articulate ideas because they're well formed in their head um so so i mean but uh, this aside, I mean, one one thing that people are proposing, and I I do see the value of uh, right now. For example, grant applications are are evaluated based on the track record of the applicant, 
And I, I, I understand why this is the case, because you want to see whether somebody has a background on, on the specific field and it's not like, you know, jumping from another domain. But people are saying maybe we should ditch that. Maybe there should be only a research proposal where you clearly highlight the state of the art. And then if you are able to convince people uh, just through the, 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 the presentation of your ideas, then maybe that should be enough. And that then would uh, remove from the question, you know, whether somebody is more senior or, 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 or a new academic. And also you wouldn't see where they're coming from, which union and whatnot. Uh, so that, that could be one option. That, 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 that's maybe a, a way to do it. But then funding bodies should have a mechanism to evaluate whether this is working or not. So obviously it will be, you know, a many years process and we would need some sort of A-B testing uh, like you know, the, the software companies do to see, does this bring benefits or not, and and, and how are things changing? And the other the other thing, it's not it's not really a real solution, but I think looking at data very carefully, even if we need to go and dig back data from previous years, we can see whether there are trends already that we might be missing, because the system has memory, be because for example. It's 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 people like like you from today that would be addressing you know the 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 imbalance of females versus male academics later, but this will only manifest in a few years. So we need to go back and make sure we are studying very well the trajectories of people, to 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 see whether actions we did in the past whether they they've had any any good uh, impact or not. Because we, 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 what we shouldn't, we shouldn't do, I think it's a trap to try and do something today and hope there will be results tomorrow. This is really excellent. And I, I, I would like to thank you for your honesty about this answer because I think that's something uh, you hit the nail, to be honest, in that, uh, for this answer. And uh, I, I'm also curious to ask you, I think, I think you push about the data. If you, someone can manifest the data and that's like evident if the system... Exactly. Uh, and I, I think yeah. I think you you said the solution. So I think there's no questions that I can ask in this case because that's the only solution that you can manifest whether this enhanced system or not. So thanks a lot for this answer. Thank you. Okay. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Ego. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. I mean. Ego, you need ego in order to 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 be confident that uh, it's gonna all work out in the end, because it does have a lot of bumps. So it does get worse before it gets better, and unless you know you believe in yourself and your your team. So I would say you need ego as a team, and not ego as a, I'm the best, but ego like okay, we're gonna do it, we're gonna make this happen, and uh, um, so this ego is tied with inspiration to a certain extent, but. Uh, you need to be humble as well because other people are better than you and you need to learn from them. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, ego, ego is always tied with a negative, uh, it's always negatively charged. But I think in any sort of job, in any sort of work, unless you, you have a strong belief that uh, you and your team can make it, uh, you're not going to go very far. And that's, that's also a, a, like ego to a certain extent. And it is interesting because there's always a thin line between the ego and confidence and both of them really, yeah. But you're right, I think uh, you have to be careful about no, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, you know, confidence is, the, 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 confidence is you knowing that you can make it. Ego is thinking that nobody else can. 
So the, the, the second part, we shouldn't have it. And which book inspired you? Book. Mm, that's a, Yeah, okay. No, I know. My favorite one is called The Information. It's The Information, a stream, a flood in the end. I can't remember the, 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 the second line. So it's about how people started using information to communicate. It goes all the way from, you know, beating drums and shouting and then to, to, to Shannon. And, and it's, this, this, this was a phenomenal book. I love it. And if I ask you what is the most important quality you have gained while being academia, something you have to maintain for your academic journey. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's for my team to judge, really. I, I'd like to think that uh, I care about them. Uh, I, I, I hope I, I show this and I hope that, they, you know, they, they feel this. And uh, I think if, if this disappears, then, then we're not going to have any future. I think, you know, I care about that they should care about each other. And also, I mean, now, as, 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 the, the is, as, as academics grow older, the, the, the age of their team remains the same. And we should definitely try to, to remain connected in, in, and, and have this sort of like a more uh, uh, relationship that, that allows us to, especially, you know, given all these pandemics now and everything, it showcases that you need to have strong relationship within a team to, to know and try to understand what people are going through. And I think that's, that's important because we, what, what I don't want to forget is that academia is, is education. So yes, we do research, but it is considered education, like the PhD is a degree. And because it's education, we should, you know, have education, educational aspirations as well. So not just doing the, 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 the best of the best research, but really teaching people to become better as researchers. And I think all this comes together with having good relationships, as you would expect from any teacher. You're really stressing a very good point. I think that's also the role of mentoring. And I, we, we speak about how mentorship is very important in academia. It's very critical. Yeah. yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice was given to you, whether personally or professionally, and was the life changing? Uh, the best advice to me was to... Yeah, given to me was uh, work on, on, on problems that, that matter. So, and and because, and I think this, this, even if you, even if you fail, at least you would have worked on something that you care about and that excites you. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like to have a second one as well, which was, was not given by an academic, is, is, was take decisions that help you sleep at night. And I really like that one. Because when, you know, if all your decisions and you can go and sleep with an empty heart and, you know, and, and an empty head, you know that, you know, something is okay. I really like this one. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a good, very good advice. Yeah. Even outside academy. Yeah. So, yes, fi exactly. yeah. Do you have any final words of robotic community you would like to say? No, I, what I'd like to say is like, uh, it's... Keep on, on trying. This is an exciting time. Uh, it's it's going to be fantastic when the first, you know, soft robotics company comes out and uh, it shows all the benefits that have happened. And um, yeah, it's just exciting to, to, to work in the domain. Thank you uh, once again. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Uh, it was very soulful. Yeah. Very